morning, as I, um, as you may have noticed, I decided to end the Acts series after five chapters, um, and um, I'm going to go back to the book of James today. If you recall, we paused this series when the pandemic hit, but as promised, I'm picking it back up where we left off. We'd covered about half the book because we had grabbed some, some future verses, and so we covered about half of the book when we paused, so let's just review a little bit. If you recall, I gave the series a provocative title, Put Up or Shut Up. <laughs> the general idea of James is that we need to put feet to our faith, um, or we need to stop claiming to know Jesus. Put up or shut up. You know, James, James really is pretty in your face um, when you read it in terms of style. And so I don't think it's out of line to sum him up his tone with a phrase like put up or shut up. And as I said several times, sometimes maybe we need to do a little of both. <laughs> so part one was called Brothers. I laid down some background. Uh, for the book and we came to the understanding that that James was writing as the brother of Jesus it's true that James grew up with Jesus being the first natural born son of Mary and Joseph and we have a book in the Bible that he wrote isn't that something it means quite a bit when you think about it in terms of the authority of James and how much he could teach us someone who understood the heart of Jesus even though Jesus had been his brother, James refers to himself as a bond slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no way James could have thought of his brother that way without convincing proofs such as the resurrection, along with having witnessed a consistent godly character in Jesus from his earliest memories. What would it take for you to believe your brother is God? Whatever it took, that's what James came to believe about Jesus. Part two, I called Tough Stuff. We worked through James' extensive teachings on the trials, difficulties, and persecutions that Christians will face in this life, something he and the rest of the early church members understood all too well. I'd like to think some of that message has helped some of us face our current trials better than we would have otherwise. Part three was Believe. We looked at what it really means to believe, and we looked at some of the biblical promises that are dependent upon true belief. Part four was called Wealthy Warnings. We would be very unwise to dismiss the Bible's warnings about wealth because these warnings are for us. Most of us in this room are wealthy, both in terms of historical perspective and in terms of any kind of global Perspective: Wealth is either a gift or it is a curse. If we understand that it is a gift to be used for good, then it doesn't need to be a curse. We are called to be excellent stewards of what God has given us. And how we use what we have is very, very important to God. Jesus said a whole lot about it, and James was always echoing the teachings of Jesus. Part 5 was called Temptation Firewalls. So to better understand the nature of temptation and hopefully learn some good techniques as well as motivations for resisting our own tendency toward sin and rebellion. Part six was titled Taming the Tongue. We talked about the importance of controlling what comes out of our mouths or our typing fingers. 
something James addresses throughout his book has a very critical facet of following Christ. This is also part of where I got the title for this series, Put Up or Shut Up. Sometimes it's Put Up and to Shut Up. We learn that if we can bring our mouths into submission to the Lordship of Christ, we can do the same with the rest of our lives. Part seven was called Just Do It. We covered the passage where we're challenged to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Most churchgoers hear the word, but are we doing the word? That is the question. Part eight was called religion. We talked about true religion that is acceptable to God and how it really comes down to both what we do and what we don't do. I explained that true religion flows out of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You may remember that the text of James describes what true religion is, and so that is what we talked about. Today, we pick the series back up at part nine, which I've called Working Faith. The entire book of James is teaching us to stop making excuses for ourselves, to lift up our heads, set our minds to action, stop talking about what we ought to be doing, and start actually living out the life that starts with faith in Jesus Christ. Let's read today's text together, starting with verse 10 of chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds or works is dead. Faith without deeds or works is dead, meaning that it is worthless. Now, how does this fit with the idea that Jesus paid it all on the cross? How does this fit with the fact that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works, as Ephesians tells us? How does this fit with the truth that all one needs to do in order to be saved is to trust in Christ for forgiveness of sins? How does it fit with John 3.16? For whosoever believes will have everlasting life. And just to be clear, all of those statements are completely true. But how do they fit with this passage in James. This is actually one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. Why? Because it doesn't seem to quite fit theologically. 
We should admit that this is an exceptional passage. This is the caveat or the yeah, but not the main point of the new deal that's ours in Christ. Sometimes the book of James feels like that piece that is a little bit difficult to fit into the puzzle. And yet without this piece, the picture is incomplete. Whenever we come to a challenging passage of scripture, one that seems a little out of place, then we, we need to seek to interpret that exceptional passage in light and through the lens of the Bible as a whole. In those cases, we'll need to look closer than surface level to fit it all together. We do this all the time in life without realizing it. A while back, I heard a Bible teacher say something that troubled me. It sounded like he was saying one thing, but I know from the bulk of his teaching that he didn't mean it that way. This can happen with scripture too, not just Bible teachers we listen to today, but actually scripture that we read, not because of any kind of mistake or error, but because there are nuances to truth angles to look at it and because any communication is prone to misinterpretation let me try to explain with a hypothetical example let's say that i write 10 different blogs or articles or i guess long facebook posts but i never do that nine of those will say explain my personal position on how christians should be combating racism particularly against minorities, finding ways to be a part of the solution. Let's say I make it clear in those nine blogs or posts that, that black people are still mistreated in this country. And because it's because of the, and it's because of the color of the skin, and we don't know what that feels like. And it upsets me greatly. And I have a lot of empathy. And as people of God, we should be leading the way to make things better. Let's say I make clear that profiling, profiling is racism and and that stigmatizing and stereotyping other people is a sin. Maybe I can say something radical, like that we should consider voluntarily offering a financial hand up to poor minorities as God leads. Whoa. Let's say that I make a lot of white people mad in those nine blogs because they haven't realized that racism is still a huge problem. And they somehow miss the idea that if there is good we can do, we should do it. But then, imagine that in the 10th block, I explain that assuming white privilege is true for all whites, or prejudging those who have been blessed with war, is also wrong. In block number 10, I point out that reverse racism also happens and is also wrong. And let's say I mentioned that we are as clueless about what the police deal with as we are about what some black people deal with. What if in blog number 10, I come out and say that I don't particularly like the term social justice, but prefer biblical justice. And maybe I can say something about my problem, not with the words or the concept behind Black Lives Matter, but with the Marxist, morally bankrupt and dangerous organization that goes by that same name. By the way, which would be better if I acquiesce to a hashtag or if I actually do something? Well, I assure you I've done something and I am doing things. But now, what if you only read my 10th blog? Well, you would probably presume a lot of things about what I believe that are completely wrong. 
you wouldn't realize how empathetic and compassionate I feel toward the black community. And you wouldn't know how much I want to be a part of the solution if you only read my 10th block. In the big picture, part number 10 was designed to make sure that the other nine parts were not misinterpreted in an extreme which I did not intend. Well, friends, to a large degree, the book of James is to the rest of the New Testament what my 10th blog was to the other nine. In my very hypothetical illustration, James is the exception. James is the yeah, but. At first glance, sometimes the book of James seems to contradict the gospel of grace. James almost seems to question the good news that Jesus paid our debt in full, that absolutely all we must do to be saved is receive his gift by faith, something I believe with all my heart. When you look closer, it becomes clear that James is simply attempting to balance out the equation, making sure the main ideas of New Testament teaching are not being misunderstood and uh, abused. So before we even dig into this passage from James, let's very briefly lay down two of the most foundational truths in the rest of the New Testament. Number one, salvation is by grace through faith alone. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Obviously, we could spend a whole sermon on that verse, those verses, but right now, I just want you to see how clear it is that we're not saved by works. In other words, we're not saved by good deeds or being good enough. We cannot earn our way into heaven. I want to see an original NLT translation of Romans 3.22. It reads, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Now, we could read a hundred verses clearly stating that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Nothing else can save us but trusting in the Christ of the cross. This is the primary message of the gospel. The second foundational truth we need to remember as we read the book of James is this. Salvation is secure forever. Those who are truly saved do not become unsaved and then maybe saved again later. Salvation does not come and go like the wind. When you're saved, that means you're changed forever. Adopted into the family of God, having become his spiritual child. Eternal life starts the day you truly receive Jesus Christ. And folks, eternal means eternal. From that day forward, we cannot save ourselves and we cannot keep ourselves saved. God does both. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Maybe you can remember it this way. If it is real, it is sealed. If it's real, it's sealed. Friends, when God seals something, it stays sealed. The Holy Spirit is your guarantee. When God puts down a deposit, He will follow through with the rest of the payment. Your salvation is secure in Him. These two truths are not the point of our text today. But they are so prevalent in the New Testament, they must be considered non-negotiable foundational facts. And so whatever James says about works, in his effort to balance things out, he cannot intend to contradict these foundational truths. All scripture is inspired by the same God. Therefore, we must reconcile today's text with these truths I mentioned. 
We must find a way to fit James in with the rest of the puzzle. And for the record, it isn't really that difficult. Throughout his book, James alludes to three groups of people. And I'm going to refer to all three of these groups as Christians, not because they are true Christians, but because I'm talking about people who consider themselves to be Christian. And who, in fact, carry the label, like it or not. Understand that James is not talking to people who know they're not in the faith. He's not talking to those who would self-identify as unbelievers or who would uh, maybe check a box that says other. James is talking to people who today would call themselves Christian. And he has a message for these three groups uh, within the Christian label. Notice I have Christians in quotation marks. Three audiences for James. First of all, there are Christians who do without faith. These are People who practice legalism. We might sum up what the Bible says about this group with the equation, no faith plus works equals no salvation. Now the Apostle Paul addresses this group a whole lot more than does James. In fact, this is one of the primary missions of Paul, to correct the false teaching of a group known as the Judaizers, those who were confusing the Christians, saying they still had to abide by all the Old Testament ceremonial laws in order to be really saved. The Apostle Paul was constantly fighting this group to get it across to everyone else that the primary purpose of the law was to show how badly people needed a savior. Now honestly, it seems to me that James is mostly trying to give the other side to Paul's teaching, so he doesn't hit on the legalism group as much. He figures Paul is that covered. And yet James does assent to Paul's main point in verses 10 through 11 of our text today, where he writes, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. In other words, if your goal is to earn salvation by not breaking God's law, good luck with that. And remember, Jesus applied these laws in such a way as to show us that we have all broken all of them at one level or another. James is saying, hey, look, before I get into this thing about faith and works, you need to understand that we are all lawbreakers because we have all failed to obey one point or another of God's law. And so everything is in line so far. No controversy, no problem. Basically, James assents to the first foundational truth that I mentioned that we can't be saved by being good enough. Legalism is not a path to salvation. Let's go on to verse 12 and 13. James writes, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That last line is 100% a reference to the gospel. Some people say the gospel isn't in the book of James, but it is. It's in several places, but this is one place where it's most clearly said. That is the gospel. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The mercy that comes through faith in Christ triumphs over the judgment we deserve. That's salvation by grace, and James affirms it right here. James knows that without God's mercy, we're all hopeless. And that God's mercy has brought a new law. And this new law gives freedom. All of this so far fits in with the New Testament puzzle perfectly, with no need to squint on our part. Any puzzle doers? I know there's a couple. Sometimes you have to squint. No squinting required so far. Fits right in. But after this, it gets tricky. It helps to remember where he started. See, the rest of the passage is enough to say, and since you are the recipient of such great mercy, and since you are now under the law of freedom in Christ, you will not be able 
to continue to live as if you were under the law of death. Moreover, if you do, you prove that you are. Are what? Still under the old dead law. So don't miss from these opening verses that James does understand that works without faith is just as dead as faith without works. Why? Because messing up even one time will make you a lawbreaker. And faith in the mercy of Christ is the only reason any of us have freedom from the judgment of the old law. Right now, my point is that James does not get the cart before the horse. He does not put the works before the faith. He's not only straightening out the faith without works crowd, but he's also talking to so-called Christians who try to be good enough to earn heaven, even though they never really had faith in Christ in the first place. That's actually the first group he addresses. You know, Jesus also spoke to this crowd, saying, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all this stuff, all these works? Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Again, this is for the works without faith crowd. Jesus explains that knowing him, that is believing in him with personal faith and getting to know him better through prayer and Bible study through his word must come first. In other words, works without faith are dead. It's important to notice that James actually begins with grace and faith in verses 11 through 13. Remember it this way. You cannot do enough good to be good enough for God. Legalism is a dead end road. But there's a second group of people who are somewhat the opposite. And these are the people James most overtly addresses in today's passage. We'll refer to the second group as Christians who do nothing. These are people who practice license. The idea of license versus legalism is that with license... Uh, one who believes he's a Christian, is, he takes the approach that because of Christ, we now have a license from God to do or not do as we please. Sadly, these so-called Christians believe this license was earned for them on the cross. As if Jesus died so that we could sin. Practically speaking, few would admit they believe this, but they live like they do because they presume upon their salvation. Taking no thought that maybe if the results aren't there, neither is the salvation. This is to live without any fear of God because, hey, I'm saved. I'm already forgiven. I can live however I want. Most people would never say this, but somewhere inside, it's actually their mantra. We might represent this group with the equation fake faith plus no works equals no salvation. One of the most provocative parables Jesus ever shared was the parable of the sheep and the goats. And just listen to how he began that parable, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, Jesus is coming back, y'all know that, right? And all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus then proceeds to explain very bluntly and as a matter of fact that the sheep are going to heaven and the goats are going to hell. This is the passage where Jesus talks about helping the least of these. And how it is that when we help people who are hurting and in need, it is as if we are helping him. And when we don't help them, it is as if we are refusing to help him. Works. And friends, here's the rub, and you can look it up for yourself. In this parable, the only, Matthew 25, if you want to do that, the only thing that differentiates 
the sheep from the goats is actually what they do or do not do. That, that's, that's it. He doesn't explain anything beyond that. It's just that. Look it up, Matthew 25. Jesus does not say a word in this teaching about faith, not a word about baptism, not a word about believing. Instead, it's all about works done for him. And I realize that we need to look at this in context of everything else Jesus ever said. In doing so, we must assume that the sheep are also those who have put their faith and their trust in his Lord and Savior before they acted on his behalf. However, we should never give ourselves permission to dismiss what Jesus clearly says in this painful parable that good works in the name of Christ will distinguish sheep from goats. Jesus' words in Matthew 25 encompass one of the clearest explanations in Scripture regarding those who will go to heaven and those who will go to hell. I cannot water down the fact that according to what Jesus says there, the defining factor between who will go up and who will go down is works. By the way, Jesus, everything James says is like a recapitulation of something Jesus said. The whole book. Read the rest of Matthew 25 if you want to see for yourself. Pretty unbelievable. It's pretty, pretty, pretty tough on, on some of us sometimes to read that. What would Jesus tell? Why would Jesus tell such a parable? Make such a point about works. Kind of blow up everything. What does this mean in light of everything else I've already covered this morning? You know, John 3.16, the whole thing, the gospel. There's only one logical conclusion that can bring it together. We must conclude that Jesus wanted to say that if there is no real works, if there are no real works, then there was no real faith in the first place. Or as James put it, that empty so-called faith won't save you. It's the heart and soul of our text today. Let's read again from verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, claims to have faith, but has no deeds, can such faith save him? The obvious applied answer is no. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not that's not accompanied by action is dead. If I claim to have faith, I can claim it all day. I claim to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Put all the words you want. I can claim to have faith, but have no works to back it up. Can my, safe, can my faith save me? The answer is no. It cannot. James knows, as did the Lord Jesus, that such faith is fake faith. It isn't real. It's dead. It's empty. It's worthless. The most pertinent point being workless faith will not get you into heaven. And even though the Apostle Paul majored so much on grace and what we should believe, it's evident that he understood the necessity of good works as well. He wrote in Romans, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You know, he says this after a whole big long thing about how it's all about grace and all about faith. So we just go on sinning? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, get this, we too may live a new life. But James goes a step further than Paul, explaining that if you are not living the new life, you can be sure that you never have experienced the salvation that comes through faith. 
Now, let me step aside for a moment and issue an important caveat. Listen, I do believe it's possible to be saved and still have seasons in your life when you're living with too much license and not enough works. We also need to remember that growth and change is a lifelong, lifelong process. That's the reason Paul and James are writing these things. They don't want to truly save people to question their salvation because of a fruitless season. But they do want people to either, one, shape up, or two, realize they still need to be saved, whichever applies. They want you to wake up and work out your salvation. Or to realize you need to go back to square one and trust Jesus for real. So which is it? Where do you find yourself? Need to shape up or do you, is there nothing there to start with? It's the gray area. Only you can know where you're on, where you fall on this. Are we talking about a season without good works and ups and downs? Or, or, or more, like a, more like a life ongoing without good works? Did anything ever change? See, that's the question right now. Don't be too easy on yourself because your eternity may weigh in the balance. But I do want to point out that James is not talking about people who momentarily lose their way when he talks about faith and works. He's talking about the big picture of your life from the point of salvation forward. See, different people need to hear different things today, different messages today. Some of you probably do need to question your salvation. Listen to me, it's almost certain that someone here never really made a personal decision to put their trust in Jesus as forgiver and leader. And the Holy Spirit's therefore not begun to change you from the inside out because he isn't there. The modern church is full of Christians who aren't really. For some of you, the very thing you need to get from this James series is that you're not truly saved. It's exactly what you need to get. You need to choose to receive Christ by faith. Asking him to take up residence in your soul, change you from the inside out, forgive you. You may need to pray to receive Jesus. Be baptized afterward to take your public stand with him. By the way, not getting baptized also puts a hold on your walk. If you don't take the first step of obedience, other things just don't fall into place. I've seen it too many times. I've seen people that were actually saved, but they weren't baptized for like 10 years, and they never went anywhere with their walk. Then I baptized them, and they started growing. Doesn't mean that's when they received the Holy Spirit. It's just they didn't take the first step of obedience, so they didn't take the second, third, fourth, fifth. Baptism's the first thing you ought to do. But different people need to hear different things from James. I, I don't think the primary goal of this letter is to get those who think they're saved to question their salvation. James is writing primarily to those who have fled Jerusalem under persecution for their faith in Christ. I think he's, he's mostly trying to give the church he loves a wake-up call. He wants to make sure they don't misunderstand or abuse grace as a license to sin. Even knowing that God won't allow them to stay in that place if their faith is real. James doesn't want them to spend one more day in such an empty place of, as faith without works. I think James is mostly trying to get Christians to stop settling for so little. Isn't it amazing how this still applies like 2,000 years later? But as I said, different people need to hear different things, and God has the power to make that happen by the work of His Holy Spirit. Thankfully, there's a third group of Christians, true Christians, really. Notice I removed the quotation marks on this one. I'm talking about Christians who do with faith. This group is made up of people who practice, remember the first two were legalism, license. This one's made up of people who practice a love relationship. A love relationship. 
True faith is a love relationship with God. And that relationship always, always, always results in good works. We can represent this group with the equation. True faith plus works equals salvation. Now I debated with myself about writing that equation this way. The plus sign is very controversial, isn't it? Considering the fact that I am a person who believes salvation comes through true faith alone, this was hard for me to write. But grappling with our text, I decided to write it this way. In spite of the tension I feel, just do me a favor and don't tweet that alone without any context. Okay. James tells us that faith without works is simply not real faith at all. Faith and works, James would say, are two sides to the same coin. And yes, since true faith always results in works, the emphasis must be on the faith. But if you don't like my equation, what will you do with what James says in verse 24? You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Guys, that's like a nuclear bomb in the middle of the New Testament. This is the heart of a 2,000-year-old controversy. People wanted to boot the book of James out of the Bible because of this line. Remember our first foundational New Testament truth? Paul told us it's by grace through faith that we're saved, not of works. And Paul also wrote this in Galatians. Consider Abraham. He believed faith, God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's us, and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law, works, because the righteous will live by faith. It's very interesting to note that the book of Galatians where Paul made one of his strongest cases for faith alone is usually considered the first chronological book of the New Testament. In other words, Galatians may have been the first book to actually be written down and circulated among the churches. Now guess what chronological book number two is? You guessed it. The book of James, likely. So we have the book of Galatians being written to explain the primacy of faith over the works of the law. And shortly thereafter, we have James making the case that faith without works is dead. Let's be honest, there's some godly debates going on here. And God allowed it to get into his Bible. You see, God can even use our disagreements. And ultimately, of course, James and Paul, or James and Paul do not disagree. But those, I think it's possible they thought they did. Regardless, the resulting message of Paul and James is completely congruent. And it's absolutely necessary to have both sides of the coin in order to really understand what God wants us to understand. It's amazing how God works through imperfect people. However, we're studying James, and I will not water down what he's saying here. He does, he does make the case quite emphatically that works are a necessary part of salvation. He does. Not that works save you, but that works are necessary because faith without works is like a body without a spirit. As he says, all of us who've seen a body without its spirit have an all too vivid picture of the hopelessness and emptiness of faith without works. It's not a good thing. It's dead. 
James says, works are as necessary to faith as the spirit is to the body. Faith and works together are necessary for salvation the same way that the body and the spirit are necessary for life. That's clearly what James says. But don't miss the fact that even James acknowledges faith must come first. In verse 21, he writes, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. His works. So James acknowledges that works alone will not be enough. And even though he points out that faith requires the partnership of works, he also demonstrates that those works flow from faith and not the other way around. The statements of Paul and James rest in some tension, but they're not mutually exclusive. If we understand the true faith, it will always include works. I need you to hear me say that again. This truth's on the edge of a knife blade. The only reason James can say that works are required in addition to faith and not be contradicting the rest of Scripture is because faith without works is simply not faith. Real faith will include works. That means that if there are no works, you could know there is no real faith. So we talked about what Paul and James have to say on the subject. As we kind of wind down, I just want to go to one other person. Good old John. Gotta love John. You can get mad at Paul, you can get mad at James. Let's never really get mad at John. He's just a good guy. Loving spirit. Somebody's probably going to show me a verse that John said that would make anybody mad later, but generally. What did John say about all this? Well, he, he melds these two concepts together, just like James and Paul. Verse 3 of 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. This is love for God, to obey his commands. <laughs> See, so faith is that love relationship with God and works. Obedience is the result. Of that love. And his commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God, everyone saved, overcomes the world. That's faith and works. Again, working together. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Again, overcoming works, a result of faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I hope you see the intense partnership between faith and works in those verses. We could spend another half hour unpacking this passage, but if we did, we'd still wind up at the exact same place as we have from our journey through James today, which is this. And here's your t-shirt version of this message. Working faith equals salvation. Working faith equals salvation. Faith in Christ and works done in his name are a package deal. This is what the inspired scripture of James clearly teaches. Faith without works is dead. Can that faith save you? No. No. It's empty. It's not real. It's dead. Only working faith evidences real salvation. Maybe you need to go back to the beginning and actually begin a faith relationship with God through Christ. Or else, maybe you just need to be revived. So that you can get to work. Once again. God is sovereign. He has the power to do what he wants to do in our hearts today, to draw men and women to himself. I pray that he works in your heart because I'm only a struggling messenger 
attempting to get the words out that God would want this church to hear. What did God want you to hear today? For anyone who's never made a personal decision trying to receive Jesus as Savior and committing to following Him as Lord, for anyone who isn't sure, for anyone who wants to nail it down right now and remember this day forever, I would ask that you pray along with me in your heart right now. Let's pray. If you're not sure and you want it to be today, and you understand that the works follow, and if it's real, they'll follow, you've got to start with the faith. You've got to surrender to Jesus. You've got to believe, not just believe that he's real, not even just believe that he died on the cross and rose again. You do need to believe that. That's, that's, that's the gospel. But more than that, you've got to put your trust in it. You've got to say, I'm putting my trust in Jesus today that because of him, I can be okay with God. That because of what Jesus did on the cross and because he rose again, there's power for me to be forgiven and made right with God. I believe that. I'm putting my faith in Jesus to save me right now. Jesus, save me. Save me from sin. Save me from this world, from the lies. Save me. Surrender to you. Take my life. I want to live for you. You're worthy of me. You're worthy of my life. Be my God. Thank you for dying for me. Ultimately, if you just put your trust in Jesus right now and say, I need to be saved, please save me. Forgive me. Help me be different. I believe he will. I believe he will. He promised he would. And he has a place in heaven for you. Not because of your works. Because of your faith. Because of what he did. His work on the cross. And now for others... You may need to just have a moment of surrender to say, oh man, I'm not, I've been taking it for granted. Forgive me, Lord, I'm sorry. I love you and you love me. And there's, I know there's some things that need to change. What do you need to surrender to God today as a believer? How do you need to start living out the works? Maybe you need to work on that relationship part because you're not really hearing from God about things you need to do in the world. Or maybe you're just not doing what you know you should do. Whatever it is, just do some business with God. Tell him yes, say yes. Yes, Lord, I'll do that. I'll make that change. I'll work that out. I'll look for more opportunities. Just tell them. Thank you for your word today, God. Thank you for James and the way it brings the whole picture into focus. As we continue to study it, change our hearts, make us a stronger church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.